0: Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in DC, we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of DC, we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in, where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to worship with you this morning. Um, Particularly if you're new, we want to say welcome. We're so glad that you have chosen to spend um, this Easter morning with us, and so thank you for joining us today. Um, We're going to spend some time now reading God's Word together and, and seeing what God, what He has for us in that Word, and so let's pray, and we're going to jump right into a text that is in front of us for the morning. Father, we thank you that we have this time to gather together, that we gather today just as we do every week, and that throughout the centuries, your church has gathered together on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so today, um, we gather as we normally do, and yet we also mark in a special way the reality that we celebrate a risen and living Savior and King who now reigns from the heavens and, and has promised to return. And so we thank you that we have this hope, that we have this peace, and that it gives us answers for the brokenness we see in this world. And so we lift this time to you now, Father, and ask that you would move by your Spirit. I pray that you would meet us today however we've come into this place, that you would meet us and bring comfort and hope, that you would show us the reality of the beauty of who Jesus is and open our eyes to see it freshly. And We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Church, he is risen. risen Um, I'm going to need you to stay with me throughout the sermon because that refrain is going to keep coming up unapologetically today. (laughs) And so um, as it comes up, please don't lose enthusiasm and get tired as we go. Um, We're going to see in today's text that I'm fearful if you do get tired of what might happen to you. Um, and so, it, it, throughout the text, I'm going to try to make sure that you're with me and that you're awake, that we celebrate together, because, because even as we spend time in God's Word and as, as we hear God's Word proclaimed and preached, this is not a monologue. This is a, a time of worship for all of us to join into together, and so I need your help today that whenever I say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. All right. Um, Thomas Arnold is the professor of modern history at Oxford University. And this professor of modern history has said, No one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. And so today, that is what we gather to celebrate. Now, we are in a series in the book of Acts as a church. And this, and this Sunday, we're going to continue in that series. And so if you're new with us, this is a continuation of what we've been doing. And next week, we will continue on with the next um, passage in this series. This, the book of Acts is important to us because it shows us the establishment of the early church. And so as we as a church consider what the church is, it's helpful to look back and say, what, how did it begin? And how, what are the things that we see and the principles we can learn from the earliest days of the church? And what we've seen in Acts is it begins with the ascension of Jesus because his resurrection was not a resuscitation. He was raised from death to life, never to die again. And he then ascended into the heavens where he reigns at the right hand of the throne of God as king over all things, and he has promised to return. And so after his ascension then, it shows the movement of the gospel, the movement of the good news of his resurrection and ascension throughout the, the Roman Empire at the time, throughout the known world, through his people, the church. And we, we've seen as a church, as we've walked through this series, that Jesus called his followers to be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, and so we're in the third part, seeing that extend, God's word extend to the nations, to the ends of the earth, and we've seen that the gospel, the good news of who God is and what he's done for us ultimately in Christ, is not just an individual gospel, it's a world changing proclamation of a new kingdom, and we're brought together in a new family, called together in a community called the church, and so today's passage shows us something of the earliest church and something of life and death. Ultimately, what we see today in the text is that there is hope in a risen Savior because he is risen. He's risen indeed. So Acts chapter 20, if you have a Bible, you can open it up there with me. If not, um, it'll be on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles available for you on the book table in the back. We'd love to, for you to take one today as our gift to you. So this is what we read in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 7. On the first day of the week... When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead." But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him into his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone and, broken, and he had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, and at daybreak they departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, we're going to stop there today and cover the rest of it next week, because I think we have enough in this short passage to cover today. Um, this is one of, the, one of the most incredible stories that in the Book of Acts, and, um, and this is, like I said, the why I'm concerned for you that you stay awake with us today. Um, it gives great comfort to me as a preacher that I have not yet had anyone actually die during one of my sermons from sleep And so especially those of you in the balcony this morning be careful um, <laughs> this, is, this story is incredible but we see something here There's details here that I don't think the primary part of the story is the miraculous healing and resuscitation of Eutychus Though that's important we're going to get to that but we see something here of, of the essence of the, what the church is and, and why the church gathers. And so we're going to spend some time just walking quickly through the text today with the time that we have. What we see here is that the church gathers together. We've seen this throughout the book of Acts, but here it, it's, it, it shows what is happening in the normal rhythms and life of a church together. And we see first and foremost in verse 7 that they gather together on the first day of the week. And this is important because, remember, all of the apostles were Jewish men. They, Jesus was a Jewish man and, and teacher, and so the Sabbath day was Saturday. It's on the seventh day that God rested. And The church, all of a sudden now, what started as a Jewish movement, gathered on Sunday, the first day of the week, for worship and for teaching and for breaking of bread. And so why did it gather the first day of the week? Because from the beginning, the church was celebrating that Jesus was raised from death to life. It was a weekly celebration, a weekly proclamation of his resurrection. And every time we've seen the apostles teach throughout the book of Acts, we see that there is one central focus that they always press toward. You never see them open up the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible and not connect it to Jesus. You never see Paul out in the marketplaces in the streets proclaiming God's word and teaching people without it getting directly to Jesus, because in the church we have one message to proclaim, we have one gospel that we proclaim. It's that Jesus is raised from death to life, that He is risen. Yes, and so, in that way, Easter Sunday for us is entirely spectacular and ordinary. Now, it's spectacular not because of us. I'm not saying that you've come to a spectacular church today. Aren't you so grateful for the spectacular worship that you've just been (laughs) exposed to and will be, and for the spectacular preaching that's put in front of you? Um, Obviously, here, I think, I mean, I think even as we, Luke, our author, was present for this. There's certain passages in Acts where we see that because he says, we did this. And so in this passage, we get that cue that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and so I love that Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul, decided, you know what story I'm going to (laughs) include? I'm going to tell the story of when Paul preached for so long (laughs) that he put somebody to sleep and the kid died. And, and you can, it's, it has a comedic feel to it, so it's, it's good that you're... I mean, even as we read it, you guys were recognizing that. I could hear some of the laughs, because like, the details that he gives us here... Now, he he, want, he was going to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until about midnight. So Luke is clearly putting this on Paul's shoulders. <laughs> Now, there were lots of lamps up there. He's saying, okay, there was, there was probably these oil lamps burning, and so you can imagine the, the, the room in darkness, the dimly lit where they were gathered, maybe some fumes of the lamps. But, but there, Paul talked still longer, and it's then that this happened. But the reason Easter Sunday is spectacular is the reason that every Sunday is spectacular. Because every Sunday, we gather together to celebrate that death is defeated, that as we sang today, the death is defeated and Jesus reigns. That, and so we can tell the world that there's hope in his name. It's, but it's also ordinary because we are going to do the same thing next week. And if you come back next week, we have one message we're going to talk about that death is defeated and that Jesus reigns, and so we can tell the world that there's hope in his name. We, we will never stray from proclaiming the beauty of what has happened in Christ's resurrection because there is nothing more beautiful, nothing, and we will never plumb the depths of God's love shown through it. And so we would love to have you to continue to join us next week as we continue to do what we're doing today there's an incredible witness of of the church throughout the ages and this is something that's that i think we lose sight of at times and and that that this is something that's been going on for centuries and even millennia that there hasn't been a sunday since ad 30 or so that god's people the church have not gathered to worship him that that this scene that we're reading about in acts 20 was in the early 50s ad probably around ad 52 and so, I mean, since that Sunday, we are part of this, this thread of God's people, the church, gathering to worship Jesus every Sunday, to proclaim the resurrection every Sunday for the last nearly 2,000 years. And we lose sight of that, I think, in our context especially, but, but the last few weeks, it seems like some of that has come up to the forefront. We've seen uh, in, in, in horrifying events that we've seen that, that, that have hit a nerve globally is we've seen destruction of churches. We've seen it in the destruction of the fire at, at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and the destruction of black churches in Louisiana as three churches were burned down. And, and so a nerve was struck, and and you're seeing the scenes of of both, where you're seeing scenes of burned out churches, and the scenes of the Gothic cathedral Notre Dame on fire, it felt a little bit too much like like a portrait of our current cultural moment, and and it felt it felt like we were watching something in an apocalyptic movie. And so, but in, in that, the commentary that we've heard on both, both of those events and has been, that I've heard mostly, has been along the lines of in Notre Dame saying, oh, the, the art and the architecture and, and the stylings of the building and things that will never be recovered. And, and so it's so, so important as a historical artifact and as a monument. And in the black churches in Louisiana saying, this is the center of social life and cultural, culture and heritage. And, so, and, and those things are all true. We must not lose in the midst of that, that yes, this is important history and art and architecture. Yes, these are important for for the center of social life and culture and heritage, and those things are true, but they're not the whole truth. These buildings, first and foremost, were churches. They're houses of worship. Now, the church isn't a building, the church is God's people wherever they're gathered, but in the midst of that, these were houses of worship in which churches gathered, and they've housed p- people historically gathering as God's church. On Redemption Hill, we have the privilege of sitting also in a historic church, a part of the lineage and heritage of what God has done here, that there has been a gospel witness continuously on this corner in, in our nation's capital since 1838, for over 180 years. The building that we're sitting in now was, was built first in 1870, and then there was a storm that wrecked it, and so it was renovated in 1897. And we are part of a lineage and a heritage of what God has done in this place. And we continue to gather on the first day of the week as the church to celebrate that he is risen. He is risen and so they gather to, to, uh, on the first day of the week, and the second thing we see is that the church gathers to break bread. It says right in the text, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. And so here, from the beginning, communion, the Lord's Supper, has been at the center for the church, at the centerpiece of what we do. And we celebrate it today, and we'll celebrate it every Sunday, as we do as a church. I know other churches and traditions have different frequency of celebration, but but Jesus commanded two ordinances, two sacraments for us. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper Baptism is the initiation coming into the community of faith, but the Lord's Supper is the ongoing reminder of the covenant that God has made with us through Christ. And it's central. It, it, celebrating it regularly keeps Christ central and the gospel central in our gathering. This is what Paul said, this, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church. He said, "What I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And so this is what's celebrated at the Lord's table, Um, and and we'll use these same words of institution later on in our service this morning. What we're celebrating is that our only hope is in the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, That, that we are on our own natural enemies of God, that we are hostile toward him, that we are all postured in rebellion against a holy God and on our own have no hope, but that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us that he uh, that that is how much god loves us that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of god that's what we're celebrating in communion and so in communion we celebrate that the death of christ tears down the dividing wall between us and god and cleansed, cleanses us from our sin and so that we are so that we are brought into a family to join god at his dinner table in the feast it's a taste of eternity and that the death of Christ tears down the dividing wall not just between us and God, but between us and each other. That we're reconciled to God and each other through Christ. That the hope that we have in the church is, that, is, is not a unity built on uniformity, but instead that we come together. It's the only place where natural enemies come together as a family. So every week, as we celebrate communion, it's we are coming together as one at the Lord's table, not contingent on our wealth or status or our ethnicity or our education or gender. We don't lay those things aside as we come together, but instead we lay aside our pride and boasting in anything other than Christ. And so the reason the death of Christ is so important is that his sacrifice was not the end; he conquered the grave, and he is risen. And so the church gathers together on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection, to break bread, and third, to hear the good news. We know that, the, that what Paul was teaching because, the entire, again, the entire book of Acts has been consistent. Everywhere we see teaching played out, whether it's in synagogues or in streets or in the marketplaces, it always is focused on Christ. And there's a consistency that all of history and all of Scripture points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, the, and so this is the gospel that's proclaimed. Now, we need to be clear today to make sure that we understand what that means. And so the storyline of Scripture has, a, has the thread of God, who God is, who we are, and what God has done, again, ultimately in Christ, but it's not only about Christ. And so it begins with creation, that there's a God who made everything that we see. when The earth and the sky, the, the, the planets and solar systems, everything was created by God for his glory, and he made us, human beings, to reflect his image and likeness, to, to be his, his, those who bear his image and likeness in the world that he made. And in creation, we were made without sin and without rebellion. But the first two, Adam and Eve, chose to sin, chose to break the commandment of God and rebel against him. And since that time, Every one of us are sinners in rebellion against God, choosing against him, both in our nature and by choice. We never, any of you that have toddlers know that we are sinners by nature. (laughs) You do not have to teach your children to be selfish. You do not have to teach them to grit their teeth and look you in the eye and do exactly what you told them not to do. We have that built into us. It's hardwired into our systems. And, but God didn't leave us to ourselves and to our own ends and to our own destruction. Even in the beginning, in Genesis 3, he promised that there would come one, the offspring of the woman, who would, who would deal a fatal blow to, to, to Satan in the end. And so we we have the entire biblical storyline as God's pursuit of his people through covenants and promises, bringing them salvation and redemption along the way, through redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt and freeing them and and giving them the, the possibility of rest in the promised land, but that rest was never fully delivered. And so that's why God took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, that he lived a perfect life that none of us has lived, sinless, and holy that he died then in our place for our sin that that on Friday we looked at the death of Christ and the seven last words of Jesus from the cross because this is his, this is historical event that Christ was killed under Pontius Pilate that he and that he was laid in a tomb and what we celebrate today is that the tomb could not hold him that, that there were more than 500 eyewitnesses that experienced the resurrected Savior in 40 days that he was again walking and teaching and eating with his followers before he ascended to heaven. And so again, the, where we started today, to understand that even Thomas Arnold, professor of modern history at Oxford again, said no one fact in the history of mankind is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. This is the gospel we pro- proclaim. And it doesn't stop there, because the promise we have is that Christ will return and that that we don't end up in some strange, ethereal realm, but instead what the Bible describes in the end is that God will renew and restore all things to his glory, that that he's making all things new, and it's a renewed creation so that the place that we live now is just a shadow of where we will live in God's presence for eternity. And so this is what we celebrate in baptism— and today, we're going to celebrate baptism together. We, and um, during it, toward the end of the service, we have, we have um, Colin is getting baptized. Um, and so I'm excited for that. And, and I want to say, too, that um, at Redemption Hill, if, if you're a follower of Christ or if you are ready to stand and publicly proclaim your love for Jesus today through baptism, we'll baptize you. <laughs> you can do it in your Easter clothes. <laughs> or we have shirts and shorts and towels available for you. And you can meet with one of our elders after, after the sermon, and we, we would love to baptize you today. And so, so if, if you're ready to take that step, let us know, and we're ready to baptize you. And so this is what we celebrate in baptism, is that we celebrate, it's a, it's a portrait of the gospel, a portrait of what has happened in Jesus, that, that as we put somebody below the water, we lower them in, and it's showing unity with Jesus in his death putting our own sin and flesh and rebellion to death and allowing it to be laid down in the grave. And that as we raise somebody up, we're showing that they are united with Jesus in life, in resurrection, as a, as with the promised hope that, that resu- we will in the end be resurrected for all of eternity. And so as we celebrate baptism today, that is the portrait of what is happening in baptism. And so they were gathered together to hear good news. And here's where we do need to spend a little bit of time on, on our friend Eutychus. This boy, it says he was a boy, it means he was between the ages of 9 and 14, which is the ages of my three kids right now. And so it was around their age um, that, they, that he was listening to Paul. And, and so, and, and here, again, the scene, there's a little bit of comedy in it in the way that Luke writes it, that Paul just kept talking and talking and talking. Um, there may have never been a better text to guarantee you a shorter sermon than normal than this one. <laughs> And so, again, we have this scene painted for us, and he sank into a deep sleep and, and fell from the third-story window and was dead. And Paul went down and bent over him and took him into his arms, and life was restored to him again. Now, in this text, again, it, it feels... Luke presents it kind of lightheartedly, and we, we I think for us that might, it might even be shocking, the way that it comes across, because if we experience this event, it feels like something that we would make a bigger deal of um, but I think it's because Paul was, in, and, and even the fact that, I'm sorry, that, that when he, was, he raised a little boy from death to life, and then he went back up and ate dinner. Like it, That's how, like, this wasn't like show-stopping, everybody, everything must pause now. It was like, okay, glad Eutychus is okay. Uh, I'm hungry, because <laughs> I've been teaching for hours. And so they go up and break bread, and they eat a meal together, and then continue to talk and converse. And along the way, they were not a little comforted, it says. I think the reason here is because this is a temporal resuscitation. But Eutychus was hearing a message that had eternal hope and glory. And so we see throughout Scripture that death is not natural for human beings, that we are, we are born as eternal beings, given life and breath by God himself, and that, that to overcome death is the restoration of God's glory in us, and that death is the enemy. That's true from start to finish in Scripture. And so reframing the way we think about that changes the way that we see these events. Now, resuscitation even, bringing somebody to life from death, doesn't happen that often in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha each raised a widow's son from death to life, and so we see God's power through those prophets in the Old Testament. With Jesus, there are three occurrences: a widow's son that he raised brought back from the dead, and then Jairus's daughter, and then his friend Lazarus. And in John 11, we get this scene of Jesus, uh, that shows us Jesus' perspective of death, that, that he, was, he was called to um, these people, that he loved, his friends, Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. And, and when he got there, Lazarus had died and been, had been laid in a tomb for four days. And it was then that they said to him that Mary came where Jesus was, and she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The deeply moved, I think, is better translated indignant. Something about experiencing the death of his friend made Jesus angry. He wasn't just sad and sorrowful. He was angry, troubled in his spirit. He said, where have you laid them? And they said, Lord, come and see. And then one of the shortest verses in the New Testament, but powerful, simply says, Jesus wept. If we want to know how God looks at our suffering and death, we don't have to look far. We see it in Christ. That he was angry at the, at the impact of death itself and, and that he wept alongside those who were weeping. But he also knew that there was hope, and so he called Lazarus to life from death. And, and Lazarus came out bound with strips of cloth and wrapped around his face and his body, and Jesus said, unwrap him and, and let him go. And it was that miracle that ultimately led to his death because the, the people, the leaders at the time said, well, this is too much, he's gone too far. Jesus knew that there was hope for Lazarus, but Lazarus would taste death again before resurrection came. And, 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 and that power we, of God we see extended. Peter called Dorcas back, from, back to life from death, and Paul here raises Eutychus. But again, each one of these would face death again, but each one was getting a taste of the power of the kingdom of God. Resuscitation is not resurrection because resurrection cannot be undone. But what we're promised in Christ is that though death came through Adam, life has come through him and that his resurrection is the first fruits for all of us. And that's why, that's why by the way, on Easter, and I've had people ask me this, like, hey, isn't it grammatically incorrect what the church has been saying for centuries? <laughs> that he is risen rather than he has risen? And No, because he is still risen. This is not just a past event. Death cannot touch Christ. And so that's why we proclaim together, church, he is risen. All right. So how do we respond to that then? If if we're all of us here today confronted by the historical claim of a resurrection, we how do, what, what do we even do if at hearing this news? Well, first receive it. I know every one of you has come into this place a little differently today. It's Easter Sunday, and so for some of you. You're Christians, m- even members of this church or visiting, but you're tied into the church that you're a part of at home. Um, and so for you, you're ready to celebrate. There is no bigger day. You look forward to this. You've probably already, if you have kids, you've probably already gotten them like hopped up on sugar. <laughs> and, um, and, and so this is a celebration. And so celebrate today and enjoy the day. And some of you, though, have come in here suffering and struggling. And you've barely gotten yourself out of bed to even come to this place. And if that's you, please know Jesus has gone before you. You can know that God will meet you in the darkness because he himself has gone through the darkness for you, but he came through it. See, Christ took on death so that when we experience suffering and death, we might have the promise that we have his life to look ahead to. For some of you, you're here today because, let's be honest, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And I'm so glad that you're here. And so I would encourage you, take a look for yourself. Take this seriously. These are claims on history. And there's no middle ground here. C.S. Lewis has famously said that that the only thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. He's either of supreme importance or of no importance at all. And so, so take this seriously and decide, what do you do with the claim of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And for some of you, you've come in today and you're skeptics. You've come just because your friend dragged you here. No one's asking you to act on blind faith. So I would encourage you, ask the hard questions. Explore it. Investigate it. I would love to meet with you and talk with you because I'm confident that there is no event that has, has greater historical validity than the resurrection of Jesus Christ and there's nothing else that gives us more hope. For every one of us today, there's a call to turn and repent and be saved, and, and if, if you haven't been baptized, to be baptized and join a new church family. And so, and so as we see here, the church gathers together on the first day of the week to break bread together, to hear good news together, and then fourth and finally, the church gathers for encouragement and comfort. Now this is what the ministry of Paul was doing earlier on in chapter 20. Um, it says that, that he, as he left Ephesus, he went through um, other places, and as he went through these places, he spent time there to give them much encouragement, and so encouragement, breathing courage and life into people was a big part of what the Apostle Paul did as he went from place to place proclaiming the gospel and then lifting up the hearts of people that he encountered and also then bringing comfort, and so that's in verse 12 of our passage today, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And so here, this is why we gather together. As a church, it's the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection. It's to break bread together and remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled. It's to hear good news proclaimed together. And as we hear those things and experience those things and come together as a family, then it will bring comfort and encouragement for us. And there is no greater comfort than understanding and, and, and believing in the resurrection. There is no greater encouragement that can come than understanding and believing in the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, because that means that we don't have to fear death. As Frederick Buechner said, for the Christian, the worst isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next-to-last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock-bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is, is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even, yes, you're terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you're healed and all is well. And so whatever you're going through now, the, the last thing in your life, if you are in Christ, is never going to be the worst thing. It's just the next to last thing that is. So that gives us the ability to laugh in the face of death. Just like Luke laughing off Paul's long sermon that had this end for Eutychus, but it wasn't his end. Whatever suffering we face, whatever sorrow or whatever pain, we know that Jesus has gone before us and will meet us in the depths and that God is in the business of bringing life from death. Um, one of my mentors said, said regularly, there's nothing I'm suffering from that a good resurrection couldn't cure. <laughs> suffering great comfort. And encouragement. And we have a great hope and a lot to look forward to. Again, we don't look ahead to some ethereal mystical thing that, that's uncertain. We look ahead to something that is certain. And T. Wright, a theologian, said, Whatever you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on on the fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection is itself. You're accomplishing something that will become in due course a part of God's new world. And so even our lives and our work and the relationships and that we invest in our suffering itself is looking ahead to and contributing to God's work in his world to renew and restore all things. And so we can come together and be reminded of these things, and it can breathe courage into us for the week ahead. And so our gathering today is both spectacular and ordinary. Now again, what makes our gathering today spectacular is not our efforts and our music and our fine preaching or the place that we gather even. It's, um, but I'm glad that at least so far no one's fallen to their death today. What makes this spectacular is that we are carrying forward the witness of generations that would gather on the first day of the week, breaking bread and unity together for encouragement and comfort, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. and that it is entirely ordinary. and we will gather next Sunday and come together to proclaim as a church, "He is risen." He is risen indeed. And so it, you can you can count on the fact that it will be on the first day of the week, that we will gather to break bread together, that we will hear good news, that we will we will look to find comfort and encouragement alongside each other, that we have one great hope, and it's not in the greatness of ourselves, or even the greatness of our own faith, but it's in a great Savior who went through death for us, in our place for our sin, and was raised to life, and so again we proclaim, church, that He is risen. He is risen Father, we pray today that you would give us fresh eyes to see the beauty of the glory of Christ, that you would give us the ears to hear your voice to us, that you would move by your Spirit and renew our hearts and souls. I pray today for those who have come in struggling and suffering, that, that you would breathe life and hope and courage and peace through Christ and by your Spirit. I pray right now that, that for those who have come in uncertain, that hear your voice calling to them to turn away from their own self-righteousness and turn instead into the righteousness of Christ, that you would give them the boldness and courage to say that they are willing to give up all that they have so that they can gain life in him. I pray, Father, that you would move by your Spirit to breathe fresh life into our souls this morning. And so as we continue to sing and celebrate baptism, and celebrate communion together. We pray that all of this would, would point our hearts to Christ, and that he would be glorified today, and we pray this in his name. Amen.